Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day in spirit. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Together PDX podcast. I'm your host, Elise Gallus, and today I'm digging deep in the archives of our past gospel gatherings for a conversation with Dr. Henry Cloud that happened in the early days of the pandemic. This was recorded in June 2020, and my memory of that time is like any novelty of lockdown and staying home and finding new hobbies, baking sourdough, has worn off. Everyone is exhausted. Tensions are high. I know for the pastors in town especially, this was a challenging time to serve. So this talk you're about to hear was really timely. Dr. Cloud will be speaking to healing and health for pastors amidst crisis. And even though we're a few years out from that particular crisis, we know that many pastors and ministry leaders are still healing and some are experiencing new crises of their own. The things Dr. Cloud shares will still be helpful and applicable to many. So in this part one clip, Dr. Cloud will share some initial wisdom, and this will be followed by a conversation with local leaders Michelle Jones and Chuck Bomar in part two. Enjoy. Good morning and welcome. I'm excited to be here. This is a challenging time, but, you know, we're the church and I think we're up for the challenge. So let's begin this morning with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for just being you. Seasons in and seasons out, you do not change. And so we can count on that. Today, Lord, I just ask that you would open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, bless and take care of Dr. Cloud today, and speak through him as well as we consider what it means to be pastors and the people of God and how we care for others. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks, Michelle. My name's Chuck, and uh, I have the privilege of introducing Henry. If you have, uh, if you're on this call, you are probably well aware of all of his work, um, from books to leadership consulting to the hospitals uh, that he ran and um, his expertise, but. The first time I met Henry was in the Houston airport, actually. We were on our way to Ecuador and um, got a chance to spend a few days with you, Henry, there, uh, four or five days, if I'm not mistaken. And I guess what I would just say is um, what I what I found and over conversations over meals and um, on car rides and everything else, talking about leadership, talking about church ministry, um, from family, raising girls, uh, even had a chance to talk to you, Henry, about my own relationship with my dad. What I, what I found was a very humble man, um, a ton of wisdom, somebody who not only loves God, but loves the church. And for me, uh, what was maybe perhaps most impactful is just to hear your love for your wife and your family. So, um, I, I am very excited. Henry, to for us to hear from you, and uh, in this time we we did a little bit pivot this morning, 
with uh, there's a lot going on in this world and uh, just looking forward to you helping us uh, process who we are in the midst of all this. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Henry, and um, look forward to conversation following this too. I started to say, it's good to be with you. Um, and then I always have to say in the, in the new way that we get to be with each other. Right. But I think everybody's, everybody's pretty, I'm not, I'm not going to know what to do when there's actually humans, you know, in, in a gathering, real bodies there. Um, but anyway, all that aside, it's, uh, it is good to be with you. These are, um, you know, we just have to start with acknowledging what is, these are really, 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 really hard times. Um, and you are, um, not only, and I'm just going to jump into it here. Um, you are not only experiencing hard times. Um, you've got kind of a threefold, you're sitting in three chairs here. Um, you're, you're going through something yourself. We're going to talk about that. You're also going through something and having to lead others who are going through something at the same time. And you're also having to be there in as kind of a healer as well as a leader. You know, about probably six weeks or eight weeks or so ago, I did a big, big pastor's webinar on, on, you know, the psychology of the crisis and leading through the crisis. And one of the things I said is, you know, everybody that sits in a leadership chair right now, you really have two hats at least just in your leadership role, you've got to be a leader and you got to lead the organization, whatever that is that, that you're leading the ministry or the business or whatever. But you've also got to be a psychologist because you're not leading people in a normal state. Your people right now are in a state of whatever we call it. Some all the way to traumatized and others just, you know, it, at least, extremely activated their system is activated and so you're really not leading normal brains right now you know a lot of research has shown that in a crisis in different moments of the crisis and this is going to flip you out it's also going to explain some stuff that people can lose up to as much as 30 iq points in in a moment whatever that moment is and so this, this stuff really, really affects us. So you're leading people like that and you're having to minister to people like that and you're also going through it yourself. So we want to spend, as we talked about this, we want to spend the, the bulk of the opening time here and then, then we're going to go into Q&A. But the bulk of it, um, I just want to talk to you about not how you're leading others. We're going to go into that, but I want to talk to you about what I found in big, big crisis moments, what happens to leaders. And you may or may not be feeling this, but let me remind you of something. Just because you're not feeling it doesn't mean you're not feeling it. Okay, now I'm going to say that again. Just because you're not feeling it doesn't mean you're not feeling it. Because if you are alive your system, the way God has designed you, is taking in all of this. And part of the problem is that you're actually having to focus 
And all of this is having to go somewhere else for a moment. That's what a leader has to do. And that is precisely why we see Navy SEALs and special ops and soldiers and first responders who do an incredible job in the moment begin to experience PTSD and other things later. Okay. It's almost a sign that you did your job well in that you were able to get above it and push it aside. The technical term for that is compartmentalization. So you went through this, you set it aside and then you did what you had to do. Well, setting aside doesn't mean resolving it. It means I'm going to get to this later. That's what your brain hears you say when you compartmentalize something. Okay. I'm going to get to this later, but if later doesn't come, it will come to you. So that's kind of the basic thing to remember here about you're going through this. So what I want to do this morning is I, I want you to get to it later intentionally and proactively because it is affecting you. Now, some of you may be experiencing a lot of that later now. And in some ways that's, that's good because you're, you're, you're kind of in touch with it. We generally are not in touch with something either because A, it's too overwhelming or B, it's not too overwhelming. We just, we just don't want to go there and we kind of actively, actively push it aside. Give you a quick example of this, just to show you. I'm not, I'm not preaching down at you. I can tell you from, from my life. I'll just give you one example of this. Just one. I've got, you know, three or four. But one of them, the most recent time that I've ever had this happen to me was in, in the, in 08. My, um, both of my parents died within weeks. Um, and when then, a few weeks later, my brother-in-law that I was very, very close to, who was a Navy SEAL, was killed in Iraq. And all that happened, like, real quickly. And he had a new baby, he and his wife, Sarah, had a new baby. And the family just, I mean, we just, it, 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 there's, it was devastating. But we were all, you know, we just all went to help, right? You got to you know, 39-year-old widow with an infant. Um, I'm sorry, maybe she was 30. I don't know how she was at the time. 35, maybe 30. Anyway, bad. It was really, really bad. And at the same time, I, I work with CEOs, and a lot of my clients, you know, were literally on Wall Street. And, you know, when I was a CEO of one of the big Wall Street banks, if you remember, the country was on the brink of collapsing. McCain, McCain wanted to cancel the election that year. It was a bad time. All right. So I'm, I'm on planes trying to deal with, with stuff going on with the, the crisis as a leadership consultant working, you know, 80 hours a week. We've got family trauma, but I've gone through. I'm in the helper road, but I, mode, but I've gone through three major losses and I didn't have time and I just kept going and I just kept working and helping. I mean, I had to, you had no choice. And sometimes here's what happens. You know, my parents died and that, that kind of got lost. And then when Mark was killed, 
I was literally walking onto a stage. There was an audience of about 7,000 people. I'm walking onto the stage, and I took the call. I didn't know what it was. I mean, my wife's calling me from L.A. I took the call, and she told me that it still hits me. She told me, Mark, you've been killed. Right when I'm, like, literally about to go on, I I don't know what to do. The audience is there. I go, okay, I'll talk to you. And I, I remember it's almost like a physical, like taking this and push it aside and I go on. And that was another kind of big compartmentalization. Something happened, I think, neurologically to me in that that, that moment where it got split off. And then all the stuff with, with the other losses. So I go through that year. A year and a half later, I'm standing on a stage in Rochester, New York, in an arena with 25,000 people. And I'm speaking just like I always do. And the room starts spinning like this. And I don't know what's happened. And then it starts escalating. And I realize I'm a psychologist. I go, I'm, I'm having a panic attack. And I knew I can't leave the stage. Don't do that. It'll get seared. Stay up here. I, I, I make it through it. Anyway, it continued to happen week after week. And I had to go find a good shrink and sit down and unpack it. And I unpacked it and went through all that processing. It's just processing. God made us to process. But it will come back. I thought I was a year and a half past it. It'll come back. So what I want you to do today is I'm going to focus on making sure that you are aware of some of the effects as you go through this as a leader and be aware of healthy compartmentalization. you got to go do your job, but you've also got to take care of yourself. Okay, so what happens to a leader in a crisis like this? Well, basically, fundamentally, the biggest, biggest kind of like, like, it's almost like the, 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 what am I looking for? The, um, the trigger, the red button that makes the bomb go off inside of you is basically has to do with two things that you, that something overwhelming occurs that affects your life. Okay. Check. We got that. And then in the last week, check, you got another one because you're shepherding all these people that are going through both of these crises now. And the big red button is it's out of your control. Okay. Something is affecting you. That's out of your control at the same time. Unlike 08 and unlike, you know, 2001, this one is different because you're having to do it almost, almost in isolation. I mean, we put people in, you know, in solitary confinement to drive them crazy as a torture. We don't. I mean, we, yeah, but that's the method, right? That's, that's, it's the worst thing that you can have. So now you're going through all of this and you're, you're physically, you're not able to have your hangouts, you know, with the people that you're closest to. And so it destroys all of that. So here's what happens to the psyche when somebody that's used to having what we call agency or control like you, you're used to being able to, to, to pull a lever and something happens, right? You, you, you decide to do something, you call a meeting, you execute an initiative, you allocate resources, you're a leader. This is what you do. You're used to being in control. That is a good thing. God made you for the fruit of self-control. Your brain is wired 
to have self-control. Right now, things are affecting you, and whatever, a lot of what you do, you don't have control of. You can't have the meeting. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't go shopping. You can't go to a restaurant. You can't be with your team in the way you're – and so what happens then? Well, here's what we know about the brain. When things are affecting you that you don't have control over, the brain gets a message. There's nothing I can do about it, those things. But it interprets that message in a I'm powerless. The literal term is learned helplessness. Came about in the 70s, I think, when they were doing research on dogs, that they would shock them and, and hit a lever and it could stop the shock. And then they unplugged the lever, didn't stop the shock anymore. The dogs just quit doing anything and just collapsed. You still get this mild shock. And then they removed the fence and the dogs didn't get off the pad when they could just walk to an okay place because their brains had shut down. Okay. That's what happens. We go into this state called learned helplessness where we feel like crap. I mean, this thing is bigger. There's, there's, there's nothing I can do. So when that happens, the software in your brain changes and it turns into, it's sort of like you get this program running and I really want you to watch for this. It's called the three P's. Something happens and you interpret it with the three P's. Personally, pervasively, and permanently. Now, what does that mean? Well, whatever you're trying to do that day, it doesn't work. Or, you know, you have this online thing and only three people show up. Or you look at the bank account to the church and it's uh, there's an event. Your brain activates the three P's. Personally, you take it personally. Whatever made me think I could lead. I mean, I, I should have prepared for this. You know, other churches have more cash reserves. They got, you know, better plans. They organize themselves differently. Why did I, why didn't I? And there's a feeling that you're not good enough and that it's a, it's, you're bad. You're failing. That's the first thing we see. And you're not immune to this because you're a high performer. That's what I saw from Barron's top 50 on Wall Street. That's what I saw in 2001 in New York from, from CEOs. This happens in trauma. They feel like I, I'm not doing good enough. I'm not, I, I should be, other people are, are thriving. What's wrong with me? Okay. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and it's not just this event, it's that, you know, the online thing isn't working and we're trying to organize groups and I'm trying to get the net and that's not, it goes pervasive. So it's like none of this, you know, my ministry's not working. You know, the whole, t- my life sucks. The whole thing is bad and it goes subjectively very, very bad. Everything's bad. And you go into this, this, this negativity that everything is in this subjective experience of badness. The third P is it's not going to be any different next month. It's permanent. And that's kind of the final blow. We just don't see any hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So at that point, we're pretty much toast. We're limping along and not doing okay. In in 08, one of my CEO clients of, of one of the big Wall Street banks, which you would know, he said, I got 10,000 brokers out there. And they're all just in a pile. 
He said they can't function. You know, they feel like their clients hate them. They feel like they're failures. And he put me on a plane. I went to 20 cities and had, had met with, you know, a dozen or so highest performers in the industry. And here's what I heard. I wake up at 2, 2.30 every morning. I'm sitting at dinner and my kids all of a sudden going, Dad, Dad. And I snap out of it. I'm in a daze. I snap at my wife or I snap at my husband. I can't pick up the phone and call. These are high performers, but see, their brain had been changed. And so we gathered all that data and flew 500 of their managers into Reunion Plaza in Dallas. And I trained them in a program to go back. And this is what I want you to hear. Go back. These managers go back with those 10,000 brokers and have small groups that met once a week where they did a few things that I'm going to give you here. And what we saw as a result of that program was everything changed. We got bombarded with letters to the CEO. Thank you for giving me my husband back or my wife back. Some of them turned around by their brains working again, having the best year that they had ever had. And that's what we're seeing in ministry as well. Okay. When a mind shift happens, I'm seeing leaders beginning to get their brain working again, where you can get innovated, innovative. And we're seeing some people do incredible things that because the harvest is, is plenty. If we can get the workers feeling okay and the mind shift is not stuck in all that negativity, but I want you to normalize it guys. Normalize it. Men and women, leaders of every rank go through this. Every rank. I mean, the highest performers in the world. You got to normalize it. You got to name it. You got to give it some space to process it. And I'm going to give you some tips. Okay. First of all, realize it's going to affect you in three three different areas of your life, maybe one more than others, maybe two, maybe all three. Would you make a little chart? C-R-P, three columns, C-R-P. Clinically, relationally, and performance. Now, I want you to just be aware, write down your clinical symptoms. How's your mood? Some of you may be fine, but some of you may not be. Clinically, how's your mood? How's your anxiety level? How's your worry level? How's the stress level? How's your energy? How's your libido? How's the your sleep? How's are you trying to self-medicate, moving towards something addictive? Okay, get that column one. Relationally, are you moving away from people that you normally are close to? You find yourself withdrawing or detaching or shutting down. Are you snapping at people? Are you agitated? Is it hard to get close? You find yourself kind of like in arguments that you never would have been in or afraid to reach out, afraid to tell somebody you normally would get support from, afraid to tell them how bad you're doing. You know, fight or flight. We'll fight the people we're close to or we'll move back and avoid them. How are your relationships, your key relationships? And then performance. 
how are you doing in picking up the phone? How are you doing in, in, in naming the priorities you need? How are you doing in following through with all of that? How are you doing in just, you know, performance? So I want you to get your symptoms. And then I want you to get above those. And I want you to, number one, number one, it's going to sound elementary. It is the most powerful, the most powerful stress reducing drug in the universe. Number one is I want you to get in a place where you are empathically connected with. God calls this abiding. Okay. This is why throughout the new Testament, go to, you know, go to John 17. He's sending his army out there in the crisis He doesn't pray for finances, strategy, any of that stuff. He prays for one thing, Father, that they might be one as we are one. So here's what we know. One of my favorite studies, I quote it all the time. You take a monkey. They used to do this back before Peter stopped them. (laughs) You take a monkey, put him in a cage, and just scare the crap out of him. Just, you know, shake him in the cage like this, and their eyes are big and flashing lights and and, and they just terrorize the, these little monkeys. Then they draw blood from their brains, check, check their brain levels of stress hormones and all that, and they get a baseline, okay? Then from there, they don't change the stress. They don't change the crisis. They don't change the, the noise and the flashing lights. All they do is open up the open up the cage door, and they put the monkey's buddy in the cage and close the door. Then they take the blood again, the stress levels have dropped by 50% just because the monkey's got his buddy in the cage. All right. The New Testament is not kidding when it says weep with those who weep, support one another, help the weak, all of this relational stuff. There's a neurological wiring basis, a biochemical basis for that as well that God has put into us. When you got your monkeys in your cage with you, your brain's going to work better. So here's my question to you. Who's your monkey? I want you to write those down. I want you to get some monkey covenants going. Concentric circles. Jesus had his 12. Then he had the three, Peter, James, and John. And then even when the three had his closest friend, it looks like John. And he's the one that wrote all the abiding passages. Not an accident. So who has the capacity? I want you to strategically get dosages. That's why I had 500 branch managers take 10,000. These are, these are like high level Wall Street men and women chargers, 10,000 of them in small groups every week in their branches. And there were tears and there were fears and they started to process it. But as God wired them, as they felt connected with and understood, not talked out of how they felt, but understood, all of that begins to go down. That's how God has wired our brains. If we don't process it or we disconnect, you can you can stay connected and not process. You can stay connected and not go vulnerable, and it's not going to help you. Okay? Or we disconnect, then we don't get what we need. All right. That's number one. Number two is we've got to reverse the control switch, reverse the control switch. Your brain has learned 
I'm out of control. I'm powerless. Okay. I want you to make two columns. One column, write down all the things you're not in control of. Can't control the epidemic. When's the vaccine coming? Can't control when I can even get a congregation together again. Can't control my donor's finances. Can't control all of this stuff. And I want you to write it down. We can't control the riots. We can't. All the things that you personally have no control of that are affecting you. And write them down. And then I want you to sit down and do this probably with somebody as well. Sit down and really worry about that. Hard. Your brain needs to worry about that. If you don't, it'll wake you up at three and worry about that. Worry. When I say worry, ponder it. Think about it. Okay. Think about it. What, what, you know, all this kind of stuff for about 10 minutes. And then I want you to set a timer, literally set a timer. Ding. And when it's done, I go, okay, that's my worry time about stuff I can't do anything about. And quote Matthew six, where Jesus said, which of you can add one iota to your life by worrying? You can't. And tell that list, you know what, God, I'm giving this list to you. These are your problems. And then you set it aside, and then you go to the second column. These are the things I do have control of. I can connect with the people I need to connect with. I can prioritize the things that actually are helping to a couple of things. And then I can list the activities that are going to drive those priorities. I can add some structure to my meetings and meet with people this and the other. I can meet with my stakeholders. You know, we got to be connecting with, with, with donors and parishioners and all this. I can strategize about how to keep the essence of my ministry going while the, how I used to do it while I can't do that. See, it's it's kind of like you know if the the old illustration of if the horse and buggy people had realized they're not in the horse and buggy business. That's what they thought. We're in the horse and buggy business. What are we going to do? Well, if they had realized you're not in the horse and buggy business, you're in the people moving business. Then when cars came along, they wouldn't have been freaked out. They're in the same business. They just had to change how they do it. So you have control of realizing what business am I in? Each of you has a different focus. Some of you are your, your, your business, your mission, the essence of what you do is maybe yours is you take people through spiritual formation or transformation. Maybe others of you are just, you know, you're more evangelistic. Others of you are trying to feed the homeless, you know, whatever. Whatever the essence of the stuff you do is, the how you've done it might have been a horse and buggy pre-corona. The how we're going to do it now is going to be different, but this is what's not going to change. So don't think we're in the gather people together in a big group on Sunday and teach them something and play songs business. That's not your business. That's how you did something. So get it down with your team. What's the essence of what we do and how are we going to do that going forward? Also, here's another thing you have control of. You can organize the Jethro Army. Organize the Jethro Army. Now, here's a big deal right here. Moses was trying to take care of everybody. You know the story. 
Jethro comes and says, Moses, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out. You got to organize a bunch of other people to go take care of all these people. Oh, well, there's a great idea, right? It's called building an army instead of being the army. Now, some of you are thinking, but I only have X amount of staff members. I only got a couple, whatever. Exactly, exactly. And that may be, that may be, can we say by design? You know what God says? Your soldiers are not the people you pay only. Your soldiers are this body. I've got a good friend who's a pastor in Cincinnati, and I called him. I said, how's it going? He started telling me, he said, he said, and it's really great. He said, one of the greatest things is, he said, I got 15 elders, and I brought the elders together and told them, okay, now you're pastors. <laughs> and we assigned 15 families, I think, I know 30 families. So some number of families to each elder and they're calling them a couple times. The families call a couple times and they're, they're spreading this work down and then they're recruiting from those people, other people. This is a body. There's no such thing in the new Testament of paid versus not paid in terms of everybody has gifts that are going to be used in the body. So we got to make a shift of, it's not just the you and the church staff that's doing all this. You have control of organizing and taking steps to find people's gifts and activate those gifts as well. Okay. And there's a bunch of other things you have control of and, you know, the routines with your family and a bunch of stuff. So I just want you to list these things, get a few priorities, very key, a few priorities every day. I sit down at my desk and I'll write down a, these are the few highest priorities the, I have to move the ball forward today on these few things. And here's a couple of activities on each one of these things that I have control of that I'm going to go do. Okay. It's going to get you back in control. Then the third thing, the three P's, I want you to start to log these three P's. I'm personally interpreting it as I'm bad, pervasively, everything is bad, permanently, it's never going to change. Okay. You're going to have automatic negative thoughts that are going with you here. Automatic negative thoughts. Please learn this. Automatic negative thoughts. Okay. Where do those come from? They come from your brain, not your mind. Okay. Hear that? Your brain is a physical organ and under stress, it produces negative thoughts, predictions about the future, what's going to happen if, all of this kind of stuff. Those are primarily being generated by the fight-or-flight response, trying to explain why do I feel the way I feel. It's like somebody's afraid to get on an airplane. Oh, I'm scared, I'm scared. Why is that? Because the plane's going to go down. So your brain's got to explain why you feel the way you feel. Those are just thoughts. But your mind is not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's immaterial, not material. So as the Bible says, we don't have to be overcome by the stuff. We have the mind of Christ. So you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
and we get above our thoughts that your brain is producing with your mind and you observe them. Oh, there's that crazy thinking again. Oh, there's that hopeless thinking. There's that blaming myself thought again. And you learn these thoughts. What I want you to do is, it's going to sound cheesy, but there's so much research on this. I want you to log them, the main negative thoughts you have. And then I want you to write next to them how you are going to dispute those thoughts, taking them captive to the obedience of Christ, and how you're going to dispute them. Okay? I'm worthless. I'm this, that, and the other. That's a crazy thought. Ephesians 2.10 says that I'm God's workmanship. I am his piece of art that he's created and designed to do works that are sitting right there before me that I do have control of that I can go walk in. And if I was supposed to be changing the world in a way that I don't have control of, he would have made me with it different. But he's given me what I've got. Okay? Dispute that. It's all going to be horrible forever. No, it's not. No, it's not. The scripture says that there's no such thing as hopelessness for me. What are they going to do? Destroy my body? <laughs> Jesus said, don't worry about that. That only lasts a little bit. He said, worry about this. It's hopeless. No, God has a future and a hope for you. See, there were 10, what was it, 12 spies that went and looked over the fence into the future, into the promised land. 10 of them said, oh, this is terrible. Listen to their brains. You got the other two. You know, Joshua turns around and goes, hey, dude, we can do this because we have him. Okay? So we're going to start to dispute what your stinking brain is telling you that's physiologically, you don't want to let cortisol run your future. You want the Holy Spirit guiding you into your future because he's not afraid. And Jesus said this, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Psalm 139 says, God, try my anxious thoughts, test them, look at them, help me get above them and observe them, see if there's any hurtful way in them, if I'm interpreting this crap in crappy ways, and lead me in the way of the everlasting. See, the Bible, what is all this mindfulness stuff these New Agers think they came up with? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Our Hebrew scribes wrote this down at the finger of God. They said, don't get caught up in your thoughts. Get above them and be mindful of what your brain is producing. Don't let the hurtful way take over. The Bible had us telling to observe our ways and observe our thinking and get above our thinking long before a brain scan could take a picture of that. God's got this stuff, man. And then remember this. As you log those, get your verses down. Let me give you a, a simple example for me. This is, you know, since this thing started, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not really, I am in one way, okay, true confessions, but I'm not in life, but I am in one area which kind of generalizes a little bit. I'm a little bit of a germaphobe when it comes to food poisoning. Okay, because I had a real, I ended up in the trauma center one night. Uh, worst thing of it, worst pain. I can't describe the, the, what was happening, but I had, I, I, I ate something that was awful. It had me on IV Demerol drips and it was terrible. And ever since then, 
I'm not going near chicken that's been out more than 20 seconds, right? And my wife laughs at me. But you know what? In this, but I'm not past that, but in this corona thing, I'm like, oops, where are the bugs living, you know? <laughs> and and every now and then I'll screw up. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, open a door somewhere. And, oh, crap, I touched it. I should, oh. Uh, and I realize I made a mistake. And, you know, wash my hands or whatever. But I, I kind of get, oh, uh-oh. I hope I didn't immediately because I'm in it every morning and every night. I've missed a few, but pretty much every morning, every night, I meditate on Psalm 91. And here's what it says. You will not fear the pestilence that comes by day or the, you know, the uh, whatever that comes by day and the, and the plague that comes by night. He will guard you. It's not going to come near your tent, all those things. Every time I have that fear, I just, boom, I dispute it with, no, God says I'm not going to fear this. God, God didn't give me a spirit of fear, but of, you know, sound mind and discipline. And so you, you've got to dispute these thoughts. There's so much research on this because your mind has got to take over what your brain is scaring you into. Okay. And then I'll give you one, one more little tip here about this. Please hear this guys and hear this for your people. This is a moment in time, a moment in time of a much larger story, a much larger, longer movie. Okay. Much longer movie. I want you to picture a Netflix movie on your big screen. Hit pause. What do you see? You see frames of scenes, right? Sit back here. You can see the whole movie. If you've seen it before, you know, you know, Jason Bourne or Jack Bauer or whoever it is. I've seen the movie. They don't die in this scene, but oh God, does it look like they're going to die? God, they're going to help Jack Bauer. He's going to die. Look at the terrorist is right around. Oh no. That's the scene, right? It's a scene in a much longer narrative. So, I mean, go back to 08. Here's what we found. You put these these people in a room, the highest performers, some of them were like in their early 30s, and they had gone into Wall Street and were super high performers. They never had seen anything like this, and they were ready to jump out of buildings. Right next to them is a guy that's, you know, 60 years old, and says, yeah, I remember in 87 when we went through this. And I remember in 2000 when the bubble burst. And, you know, now we're in 08. See, they had a longer narrative to put this scene in perspective. They know it comes back. And here's the things we do to get it back. And they had a longer story. Okay, come on, guys. Hang with me here. I'm going to preach at you a little bit. You are pastors. All right, now I want you to think about this. You're pastors. You stand up on the stage and you deliver every week. You deliver some little scene from a story that is full, full plagues, slavery in Egypt, 
wars, Goliaths, having to go into a lion's den, famines, earthquakes, Egypt not having food for five years, God preserving Joseph to preserve his people. This is this is the movie that we sell to people. So we can't be surprised and act like this moment that we're in is anything out of the norm. This is what we're trying to convert people to come join us in this movie that God promises we're going to go through in the world. You have tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. There's going to be some more scenes. And when you get that narrative in your head, something happens in your brain. You go into a different region of the brain, the story narrative that hooks up to the language centers, able to interpret meaning out of it, and things start to kick in where you're you're now, everything starts to work again. Just because you see a longer story and a longer narrative. This is what we had the brokers do with their clients. Take them through a plan that's a 30-year plan. You know, what's happening now? Because here's what we know about the markets and how, they're, how they come back in the cycle. This is a moment. You're still going to be able to reach your goals. You're still going to send your kids to college, all of that. Put them in a longer story, and now everybody's coming back together just by changing their mind, just by changing their mind. And I want to give you one little example that applies to you. I remember this one guy said, I, said, I can't even call my clients. I said, what do you mean? He said, they all hate me. They think I caused this. I said, all your clients hate you? He goes, yeah. I said, how many do you have? He said, about 250. I said, they all hate you? He goes, yeah, they hate me. They think I lost all their life. And I didn't do this. And I'm trying to help them. I said, dude. And he's telling me he can't pick up the phone. I said, dude, you just won the lottery. He said, what are you talking about? I said, if you got 200, so how many clients do you think there are in all of Manhattan with all the brokers in Manhattan? He goes, I don't know, millions. I said, you got 250 that hate you and they're looking for a new guy. There's a couple of million people out there that hate their guy and they're looking for you. They're looking for somebody new. Here's what you do. You go to every PTA meeting, every time you're standing at the punch bowl, every time you're in the, you know, at the soccer game, just standing next to my, ask them one question. So are you happy with the, with the financial performance you've been getting this year? And they're looking at you and go, no. He said, well, you know, I'll be glad. That's what I do. I'll be glad to give you a second opinion. You guys shifted his mind to a different narrative. Had the best year he had in a long time, just because he changed his mind and see, this is what the two spies did. They had a different mindset. The harvest is plentiful, guys. When you come out of this, whatever is the next scene in the movie, this is, in broker speak, you have won the lottery because people are going to be snapped out of their denial. And you ask them, have you been happy with how you've been feeling in the last year? They're going to say no. And you say, you know what? That's what I do. Let me give you a second opinion. I found some things that have been working. His name is Jesus. And he's got an army that I joined. Come on, come join us. We're going through this thing together. We're doing good. We're going to change our mind about this because this is a longer movie. I don't know the cosmos. I don't know who engineered all of this. 
you know, whether it's the failure of man or did God, you know, he certainly let it happen. I don't know what's going on here, but I do know how he tells us in this scene as a script writer. I do know how he tells us to write my character, right? We are all characters in this movie. We're the script writers. So I don't know where it all came from, but I do know what Jack Bauer is supposed to do when this happens. So I do know what I'm supposed to be doing when it happens. And I know what I'm supposed to be doing when it happens, not just go gather for the harvest, right? And help and serve. I've never worked so hard as I have. Well, I have, but this is one of those moments of crises in the last 60 days. But what I got to go do in that crisis is also the stuff I've been telling you about. And I divide my little support circles into concentric circles like Jesus did. And I'm making those calls and I'm having the hangouts and I'm processing. And I've had to get pain out and I've had to do my priorities and I've had to do all this list and I've had to get on a routine. I'm doing all this too. That's what I want Jack Bauer, Henry that's the guy how I got to write the script for this character at this time, not just fighting the war, but also the things I've told you to take care of yourself. Okay. If you do that, you know, I'm not, not watching the clock here. I'm probably out of time. Um, if you do those things and we're, we're going to go to Q and a, and I'll cover some more in that. But if you do those things, you're going to go, you're going to find yourself really, hopefully, as Jesus said, you know, the the harvest is plentiful right now. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth the workers. And as you go lead, remember those things. Create connections for people. Create some structure and routine that gets rid of the chaos. Okay? Some order. Get them to focus on what they can control. Matthew 6. Can't worry and going to help, but what can we do now? We can connect with our family. We can have some priorities. We can practice our disciplines. We can call our clients. We can, there's a bunch of stuff we can do. Okay. There's many things we can do. And then let's be mindful. Let's practice our spiritual disciplines of getting above our brains. And as your pastor, we'll give you some passages and we're going to talk through some of God's ways of dealing with anxiety by connection and by discipline, not the spirit of fear, but discipline, adding structure, routines. We're going to get out of the lost white space. We're going to use our gifts. We're going to take some control of stuff. We're going to memorize God's word to dispute the fears of the terrorists that come by day and night. And I'm going to have a a verse to fight that with. And we're going to do okay. So, there's a few tips. Um, if I can ask Mission Control to jump back in here, you guys, for all I know, I've been talking empty airspace here. I don't know if we hit on um, some of the stuff we need to hit on, but if we didn't, just, just ask me what you need. Well, that is a funny way to end an episode. But in part two, which is out right now, we're going to move into a little bit more of a dialogue. Pastor Michelle Jones and Chuck Bomar have some follow-up questions for Dr. Cloud, so listen right now to hear more.